Greetings, and thank you for joining us for this edition of Peter's Field Hospital, the official podcast for the website Where Peter Is. I'm Mike Lewis, the managing editor for wherepeteris.com, and today I am once again joined by Dan Amiri. This is the second part of our conversation with Rodrigo Guerra, a member of the Pontifical Academy for Life and the founder of the Center for Advanced Social Research in Mexico. Before we begin the program, I would like to thank our Patreon sponsors, especially Lisa and Christopher. If you would like to support our work on Patreon, please click on one of the links to our Patreon page or on the button on the right-hand column of wherepeteris.com. I encourage you to please consider supporting Where Peter Is. We can't do it without you. In part one of our discussion, we spoke about the Latin American roots of Pope Francis's formation, as well as how his vision for the church is captured in the 2007 Aparecida document, and that much of this message is also found in Evangelii Gaudium. Rodrigo also spoke to us about what Pope Francis's election meant to Latin American Catholics and what a Latin American Pope means for the Catholic Church. And now for part two. heard some complaints about Pope Francis not too long into his papacy, and it continues to echo throughout that Pope Francis isn't an intellectual in any sort of yeah. traditional sense. And I think you kind of get a little bit of that from even what you were talking about, where maybe it's intentional. Maybe maybe the perspective of the quote-unquote intellectual is not conducive to the church today. And, I, you know, obviously, Pope Francis is well-educated. He's very much a brilliant man, but how would, what's your response to someone who says that he's not an intellectual? Yeah, I would say that they have to read him. Bergoglio is an enormous intellectual. He, he studied very much, for instance, Gaston Fessard's books, uh, the so-called Dialectics of the Spiritual Exercises, written by Gaston Fessard. Gaston Fessard was the best friend of Alexander Kohebe. Kojif was the most important philosopher studying Hegel in, in the middle of the 20th century. He also is an expert in Guardini. Romano Guardini is this peculiar, let's say, theologian, phenomenologist who applies phenomenology to the very person of Jesus Christ. So his main work, the Lord, somehow is a, a kind of metaphysical and phenomenological approach for understanding Jesus Christ. And uh, he's in the, Guardini is in the roots of the Lubac, Balthasar, Ratzinger, Bergoglio, and many others. I would say he's very well trained in the, in the field of, of theology, but also in philosophy. Not, I mean, only just a few persons remember that he wrote, Bergoglio wrote the introduction for the new translation to the phenomenology of spirit written by Hegel. Bergoglio wrote an introduction to the phenomenology of spirit. Come on. This is, I mean... I wonder what, how, how many Catholic bishops in the States have written a foreword for a book 
written by Husserl or by Hegel or by Kant or by, I mean, Bergoglio wrote a, a foreword for the phenomenology of spirit. And he's not a Hegelian in, in any sense. He, he was trying to understand how to overcome Hegel, how to overcome this poisoned way of understanding oppositions. And the way he discovered to overcome Hegel is through Guardini. Because Guardini recognizes that there are some tensions, the so-called polar tensions in reality. But they, these tensions can be resolved through communion, through forgiveness, through Christian love, through the primacy of the real over the concept, through the primacy of the unity over the conflict. So I would say Bergoglio is a very well-trained theologian and also is very well-trained in philosophy. But first of all, he's a pastor, yes. But pastor, at least in Latin America, doesn't mean a person who doesn't study. <laughs> <laughs> this is a very peculiar way of understanding pastoral work, in, in, for instance, in Europe. When you buy a, a handbook on pastoral theology in Europe, you discover that they think pastoral work is applying dogmatic theology in the field. <laughs> no, 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 no. Pastoral theology means to live faith, faith in the middle of the crowd, in the middle of people, and living faith, having this encounter with Jesus Christ in the middle of people, you have a mystical experience. You have a gift that you, you, you do not create with your own will. You have the gift of the other. And through this, you begin to pray. So theology on Niels, as Balthasar used to say, is performed by Bergoglio. But Bergoglio is a very good example of how the, the Balthasarian project <laughs> is uh, lived in Latin America. He always stressed very much the importance of, of being open to the beauty of faith, to the beauty of the gospel, to conquer the soul of the other through the attractiveness of the gospel, to, through, the, through the beauty of the gospel, not through imposition. So beauty you can find in an encounter is the empirical and existential moment for discovering faith in a new perspective. So Bergoglio is a well-trained person, well, has a pastoral approach uh, that means mainly to live a spiritual life in community, mainly being solidarian with, who, with the one who is suffering. So I would say Massimo Borghesi's book on Bergoglio, it's the academic proof, it's the scholarly uh, approach of, for explaining this. Massimo Borghesi is one of the most brilliant philosophers, I would say, all over the world all over the world. And he explains beautifully what are the main intellectual roots of Bergoglio in order to help the, the critics of Bergoglio to, to discover a little bit what the true Bergoglio is. Uh, <laughs> not everything is uh, based in, uh, in, in William May and John Finnis. No, 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 no. <laughs> there is also good theology in some other sources. <laughs> You know, it's it's funny because uh, Massimo Borghese, uh, like you, has has uh, graciously allowed us to permit republishing some of his work in English translation. So that's we've been very grateful for that for that collaboration from him. One thing that came to my mind uh, while you were speaking about those intellectual roots of Pope Francis and to uh, Ratzinger as well, a theory that had been dancing around in my mind 
it has been for a while. At the at the end of Pope Benedict's papacy, I asked myself the question, why did the Holy Spirit allow or choose? I mean, I don't know the metaphysical word, but what was the purpose of Joseph Ratzinger in the course of history, in the course of, of our tradition, being Pope? And one of the thoughts that came to my mind that I thought might have been a possibility was that the theological thought of Joseph Ratzinger, by virtue of his becoming Pope, helped universalize and give an official blessing from the universal church to much of that corpus of work that he built up as a theologian. And by parallel, especially based on what you're saying, is that the election of Jorge Bergoglio might very well have been the Holy Spirit recognizing or the Holy Spirit telling us, informing us of the necessity to elevate that message of aparecida to a universal level. Now, if Evangelii Gaudium, even though it's the messy version or the, <laughs> or the not as good version, the, the document changed my life. Yes, it changed my perspective about the church. It, it helped me understand where Pope Francis was coming from. And one of the things that made me resistant to these attacks that, I mean, I, I grew up in, in this conservative Catholic culture and my friends, my family, the Catholic writers that I read and respected were starting to turn on the Pope. And one of the things that kept coming back to my mind is these things you are saying, these terrible things you are saying cannot apply to the man who wrote Evangelii Gaudium. <laughs> I don't know if, if you can see what I'm saying there or if you think I'm totally off base. No, I don't no, know. I, I, agree. I agree. I totally agree. When Carlos Boitigua was elected, it was very difficult to understand his profile. We needed the help of many persons in order to explain what was the true intellectual and pastoral profile of Carlos Boitigua. I would say books like uh, The Thought of John Paul II, written by Rucco Butiglione, uh, the greeting, the, also the books written by Angelo Scola, and by many others, uh, helped a lot to understand John Paul II. We needed to, to discover the reality of the church in Poland. We needed to discover what is phenomenology, how to reform Thomistic thinking through phenomenology, we needed to discover the power of poetry and theater for, for sharing a living experience about the power of the sacrament of, of marriage, for instance, in the, in the so-called Euler's shop. So, so we needed to discover a lot of things, and we, need, we needed some help. Thanks God, John Paul II received this help through a very good group of friends. In the case of Benedict XVI, happened something similar. However, it was less traumatic because he was a German and German theology was more or less studied in some places in the world. Ratzinger was a an important member of the so-called Communio group. So yeah, it was easy, a little bit easier somehow to discover, but also we needed some help. And that's why we needed to, to read, for instance, Introduction to Christianism written by Ratzinger in order to grasp then the, the core of his teaching as Benedict the 16th. And I would say we need to make the same with Francis. 
We need to make the same with Francis. In the very first pages of the book written by Massimo Borghesi on, on Pope Francis, precisely he, he stresses the idea that uh, we, we needed to, to clarify the intellectual biography of Francis in order to not, not to, to elevate his particular likes or dislikes in the field of theology as a universal teaching for the church. No, but on the contrary, is, is to, to discover what are the roots that are behind the providential gift that we receive through the person of the Holy Father. Every Holy Father is a providential gift. Tomorrow is going to come a Pope from who knows where, from the Philippines, from France, from Alaska. I don't know where. But if we rediscover faithfully the providence of God, we will appreciate John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and also Pope Francis. I don't feel unfaithful if, if I say that Pope Francis is, is working in some fields that John Paul II and Benedict were not, uh, let's say, prepared for the challenge involved in those fields. The reform of the Roman Curia is of an enormous importance. The new relations with different Protestant churches, with the new interreligious dialogue. I mean, John Paul II put some seeds, Benedict also put some others. But now is the moment where Francis is taking in his hands all this inheritance. He is developing the Christian, let's say, approach to, to these topics in a new moment. And I would say uh, every pope is providential, not only through his virtues, but also through his limits. Providence is not only based in virtue, it's also based in limits. John Paul II had some limits, and those limits were providential. Also Ratzinger, and now Francis. If we discover also in the light of faith, we will live more peacefully our faith without thinking that only perfect and super virtuous persons deserve to be followed. No, no, no. <laughs> in some moments in the Catholic Church, we need to follow Persons like Peter, very humble and ignorant fishermen who didn't study in a German faculty of theology, who was not a JP2 student. <laughs> but he was the fisherman who recognized Jesus Christ as, as a true God, as a true Redeemer. And thanks to this recognition, Jesus promised to assist him and his uh, successors all the time in order to, to support the church. I would say that the, the promise of Jesus Christ to support the successor of Peter is not intermittent. It's not on and off. No, the Holy Spirit is not in holidays. <laughs> As Vigano thinks, Vigano thinks the, the, the Holy Spirit now is, is somewhere. In, 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 in maybe he's spending time in an Airbnb or something somewhere in the world. No, the Holy Spirit is working all the time through the limited flesh of Pope Francis. And this, this Holy Spirit and the limited flesh, the whole thing is the gift that we receive right now to live the, the, the faith in a true Orthodox way. It's, it's interesting. You, you bring up Vigano, of course, and, and you mentioned the JB2 Institute. 
Now, you're a member of the Pontifical Academy for Life, and you were an advisor during the Synod on the Family. Yeah. <laughs> um, both of them or just just one? Were you at both in 2014? No, I was in the Extraordinary Synod in the oh, okay. beginning of the whole controversy. <laughs> My question for you regarding this Extraordinary Synod, first of all, why do you think he called it? Obviously, the 2015 Synod on the family was already scheduled. So this may, meant that there would be two synods on the family. Why do you think Francis felt that additional attention was needed to give to the family? Was he trying to say that Familiaris Consortio, which is John Paul II's 19, 1980s exhortation on the family, did that need updating? What exactly do you think Francis thought was at stake? Yeah, I, I, I would say uh, family is somehow the very first school of faith is domestic church. I mean, it's through church, family is through church. So if we need to renew the church, we need to begin with the roots. And the roots are not parishes, are not priests. The roots are our families, true families. The, in family, we discover faith, we discover Catholic ethics, we discover how to behave with the opposite sex, we discover the, the importance of, of labor, we discover the, we discover a sense of beauty. And so, so yeah, family is a, is a school for, hum, for humanists and for Christian faith. Uh, I, I would say this is why he asked Cardinal Casper to give a, a small speech in the gathering of cardinals in March 2014. This was the very beginning of the process. When Pope Francis, thinking about the importance of family, asked Casper, Casper, he knows perfectly who Casper is. He's an enormous theologian. With a, in some moments, with a different perspective from Ratzingerian perspective. So he invited Casper, and he gave a wonderful speech, a wonderful speech, stressing that family is in risk, marriage is in risk. There are a lot of wounds in our marriages and in our families that have to be healed, not condemned, but healed by the gospel. So he invited to reconsider some basic elements of contemporary marriage and family. And, and that's why, that's how Pope Francis invited to have in October 2014 the Extraordinary Synod and uh, it was a, a very peculiar synod because he invited bishops from all over the world. He invited bishops from their Eastern rites who were very helpful. I remember when, when one bishop from the East raised his hand and said, oh, Holy Father, this is a synod of, on family and we have not talked about the families of the married priest. You know, uh, we bishops, we receive more and more petitions for annulment of marriage from married priests because we would like to ask you, please give us a word about the importance of celibacy because maybe we need to rediscover celibacy and priesthood in the Eastern Church. And the Pope looked at him and be began to laugh because it's very funny that in the Western Church, they are as many persons are asking for married priests. And in the Eastern Church, they are trying to rediscover celibacy. <laughs> because it's not so easy to be married and to be priest. So, I mean, all these things happen there. And I would say 
was a difficult moment because the atmosphere inside the synod was good. The discussions were very serious, but some persons preferred to declare, to share their opinions on the sidewalk out of the synod instead of using the time they, they have the right to use at, at a particular time for expressing their ideas. I remember Cardinal Burke and my, my professor, Cardinal Cafarra, preferring the sidewalk instead of using his, their time in the room. Come on, this was not good. This was not good. I had a, a big discussion with Cardinal Burke in, in those days, telling him, you said that there is a secret group in this synod trying to control everything. Please, Cardinal Burke, tell me, who are the members of this secret group? Because I am one of the 12 experts in this synod, and I want to know if I am maybe the, the secret uh, great architect of the universe or something. <laughs> and Cardinal Burke was, oh, oh no. And he, he, at the end, made a very horrible face and turned back the back and went away from me because I was very worried about all these declarations. In one moment, I talked with the Pope and, and it was very interesting to see his reaction. I told him, oh, Holy Father, this group is telling this, this other group is telling that. The newspapers are constructing a kind of alternative synod in the sidewalks. And I am very worried. And he just smiled. And I asked him, why are you so calm in the middle of this circus? Pope Francis took my, my arm like this and told me, you don't pray so much, don't you? <laughs> you I mean, so the only one who was in peace in the whole synod was Pope Francis. All the time he was peaceful, joyful, like, like, like enjoying. I was suffering all the time because I was paying attention to the, to the different opinions. And Pope Francis was in peace. And when he took my arm and, and, and told me, you don't pray very much, don't you? Uh, this was for me totally shocking because this is the point. When you approach to the reality of the church and its controversies with a mere political focus, you lose the point. You have to see even the most uh, aggressive controversies in the church in the light of faith. And if you pray, if you trust in the Holy Spirit, if you uh, recognize that Jesus Christ is present in the middle of history through the church and through the Holy Father, you do not hesitate. You are in peace like Pope Francis. For me, so, so always, all the time, he's, he's so surprising how, how peaceful he is. He's not like you and me trying to understand what is happening in different groups and the, the QAnon secret group and the conspiracy theories. No, he's not concerned in, in these topics. He just prays and makes discernment of spirits in the most Ignatian way, in the most Ignatian fashion. It is uh, the most important lesson from the synod of the family. <laughs> That's one of the things I... And I don't know if I'm just reading it, but I, this is the impression that I get is that Pope Francis allows himself to be led by the Spirit through his prayer. There's no, early on, I seem to think that there was this, he had some master plan and he was going to, 
surprise us a couple of years into the papacy and reveal, I mean, my, my initial theory is, oh, he's giving this uh, quote unquote liberal impression. And at some point he's going to turn the tables. And, and there was actually a piece in First Things that, that predicted this about him, that because obviously the elements of orthodoxy were there. He wasn't saying anything that was contrary to, to church teaching. And so it was like, oh, we're going to draw these people in. And then all of a sudden we're going to slam them with, with the truth. But what he was in the beginning is what he still is now. And maybe that's what you noticed about him in Latin America. But on the other hand, speaking of the Synod, and you mentioned that, that Casper speech, and I, I've followed the comments of Cardinal Burke since that time. He said that immediately after that, that speech, the late Cardinal Meissner came to him and said something to the effect of this is apostasy or this is schism. Heretical. Yeah. Heretical. yeah. And, and from that point forward, it seemed that there was this buildup leading to the Senate. There was this narrative, especially in the U.S., and I don't know if, if you were witnessing it in, in Latin America, that this synod was going to be an awful thing, that he was going to teach heresy, that this is a plot from the beginning. And they had their own plot. They were releasing books. They were granting interviews to all of these outlets saying that this and this and this cannot happen. Whereas I felt like Pope Francis's perspective during that entire process was, let's see where the spirit leads us. His final speech at that extraordinary synod, he spoke about the church and the synod being with and under Peter, which protected the integrity of doctrine. I feel like before Amoris Laetitia came out, they were hoping either that they would, quote unquote, prevail in what they had plotted to do all along, or that they would discover something that was astoundingly contrary to Catholic teaching. And what they were able to dig up was one footnote. Yeah. That, <laughs> that to, and, and to me, the entire eighth chapter, they said, you can't do this in a footnote. You, you, know, you can't change doctrine in a footnote. And my response to that would be, A, he did not change doctrine. He applied a very, very Thomistic principle of culpability. And B, the entire eighth chapter was an explanation and a justification for exactly what he was proposing. Yes. It wasn't limited to that footnote. So I don't know if you, uh, if you got that same sense. And yes, precisely, precisely. Uh, the, the, the whole controversy of uh, Maurice Letizia. Maurice Letizia is enormous. The eighth chapter is only the eighth chapter. And the controversies of, on, around Maurice Letizia are focused on the footnote number 351. Come on. Uh, for me, this, this very first uh, thing is very important. We are losing a lot of uh, context when we only focus to one footnote. But let's focus in, on the footnote. And the food that says something very, very simple, that we need to distinguish the focus based in law and the focus based in, in morals. In other words, there is a link between grave sin and mortal sin. 
They are very related, but they are not exactly the same. When the canon law prohibits to approach to the, to the, to the Eucharist, to those who live in grave sin, objective situation of grave sin, is because they make a scandal. Is because when you live in a public way, contrary to the gospel, you should not approach to the Eucharist. I, I understand perfectly this, but, but when you recover the doctrine developed by Thomas Aquinas and the Council of Trent about the mortal sin, the thing is other. It's related with grave sin, but it's not exactly the same. A mortal sin needs three elements for being truly a mortal sin. Grave matter, full knowledge, and full concept. So when you explore the topic about mortal sin, you are exploring the topic about responsibility. Responsibility. So, so there are some relations that we need to explore. For instance, in some occasions, a person who lives in, in, in a grave sin is not committing a mortal sin because has some attenuations, some, some uh, elements in the circumstances that doesn't transform the sin into a virtue. It's still a sin, but it's not mortal. It's not mortal. It's not mortal. So Pope Francis only invites the pastors in the moment of confession or spiritual advisory to help people to uh, discover if they are in a true situation of mortal sin or if they are in a situation of diminished culpability. So I, I would say this is very, very faithful to the concept of Trent. This is very, very faithful to the true understanding of Thomas Aquinas. I have been talking a lot about this topic with Cardinal Schomborn from Vienna. At the end, we conclude that some defenders of John Paul II and Familiaris Consortium first are not aware about the true intellectual profile of John Paul II, because in the philosophical works of John Paul II, and also in the theological works of John Paul II, you can discover all the elements for understanding the distinction between grave sin and mortal sin, and uh, the difference between, let's say, something objectively and from an external point of view, contrary to the gospel, and something that has true link with your own responsibility when you commit maybe with full knowledge and with full consent something evil. So, for instance, using the Boitiwa's approach, you can discover these distinctions easily. But also using Thomistic, classical Thomistic distinctions, you can discover these. So I would say some defenders are not faithful to Thomas Aquinas and not faithful to Karol Wojtyla, Jean Paul II's thought. At the end, Pope Francis was not interested in these intellectual controversies, was interested in helping priests, pastors, to help the people of God to discern and to discover that maybe in just a few occasions, some persons who live in an objective situation of grave sin, can approach to the Eucharist under certain conditions. For instance, without making a scandal. In my talks about this topic, I always put an example that is not a, a, a very good example. It's limited. 
but in some occasions helps. I, I put the example of a prostitute. If, if one priest discovers, a priest of a small town discovers on the Sunday mass that a prostitute is in the, in the line for receiving communion. Is he obliged to give the communion to her? The answer is no, he's obliged to invite her to be out of the line. Because if he gives her the communion in this very moment, it's going to be a very big scandal. It's a small town and he's a prostitute, the most famous prostitute of the town. The next day after the mass, he receives a visit of the prostitute and the prostitute explains him that he lives in slavery. This is very common, for instance, in Latin America. The prostitute explains, her, explains the priest that he, she lives in slavery, that she, she has a child, and that uh, uh, she is very repentant to live as a prostitute. But if she immediately leaves the prostitution, she or her child is going to be killed by the one who owns both of them. So if she's repentant, if she is engaged with putting all the means for leaving this situation as soon as possible in private, she can receive communion. Because there are some elements that help us to discover that, I mean, the practice of prostitution is a, gra it's a grave sin. It's a grave sin. The, the matter is grave matter. But there is no full will in the moment of practicing prostitution when you are living in a condition of slavery. So you can receive communion even in this case without making a scandal, maybe in a private moment with the priest. And, and the priest has to encourage you to leave this situation as soon as possible. You have a unique role in the church. I mean, from your work in Latin America and your work on the Pontifical Academy as an expert on, on the Synod. And I guess as we talk about these kind of controversies and the quote-unquote alternative synod and, and the alternative process, uh, one of the challenges that we face at Where Peter is, is how do we encourage a discernment that takes into account people's different perspectives about the future of the church and what is best? How do we do that in a way that is actually rooted in the life of the Spirit as opposed to a way that is so, uh, at times, it seems so divorced from love and charity for a neighbor and because obviously people are passionate about these issues and and you know to ascribe the best of attentions to for example cardinal burke i mean obviously he has a perspective you know he believes that doing xyz will lead to a more holy church but at the same time we can't deny that the very process he has taken has has also been somewhat disruptive to the life of the church so donum veritatis i think lays out a good kind of framework for this but What's your perspective? How do we really approach these controversial issues in a way that takes into account differences, but also is rooted in love and charity? Yeah, I, I, I would say maybe you, you said part of the answer, putting in first place charity. If we need to say the truth, but we feel the temptation of saying truth without charity, it's better to keep our mouth closed because we can destroy persons through the truth if it's not with Charity. Charity without truth is irrational, but truth without charity is despotic, is violent. The link between charity and truth has to be has to be maintained all the time, has to be linked all the time, all the time. 
Uh, this is, let's say, the, the theoretical approach. In concrete, in concrete terms, I would say, in all our discussions, we need to, to open a door always for our adversaries. Yeah, yeah, we, we need to leave always a door open. For instance, I had a, a very important discussion, public discussion, with Jarek Mereshki. He's professor of the John Paul II Institute in Rome. He's in charge of the Calvo Chair of Ethics there. And we had a, a, an enormous discussion in Vatican Insider, and then we jumped to, to Sandro Magister's newsletter. And he was uh, trying to say that Amoris Leticia has some problems. For instance, he criticized very much my concept of creative fidelity. It's not mine, it's from John Paul II. And I put the quotes of John Paul II where, where he uses this expression, creative fidelity, to be faithful, but at the same time, creative in order to develop a better understanding of the deposit of faith. And uh, at the end of the controversy, I invite him and all the professors of the John Paul II Institute in that moment, it was the year 2015, I think, to have a discussion, an open discussion, and to begin a common path, a common, a common walk based in dialogue and charity. Why? Maybe, maybe for instance, I, I, I said, maybe Rocco Butiglione, Cardinal Schomburg and myself, we can learn from you. And maybe you can learn something from our perspective about Amores Letizia. And if we make a common, uh, let's say, uh, way, maybe first we are going to pray together. Second, we are going to have good discussions, interesting discussions. And third, maybe we are going to learn something. We are going, we are going to put some shades to our own positions. They didn't accept. They didn't accept. My invitation was open, was made in, in Sandro Magister's newsletter. But I would say we should not surrender. <laughs> we should be open and to give a, a hand. I mean, nobody is uh, condemned forever. I mean, Vigano is not an unresolved problem. Vigano is an opportunity to show our charity, our patience, our openness to dialogue. Work is the same, and Schneider and all these guys are needed of love, are needed of love. <laughs> they put their serious faces in, in the pictures where they appear and they speak very solemnly. They need love. They need, they need to rediscover that God is always close and he never leaves the Holy Father and the church alone. They are not the savers of the church. The Holy Spirit is the only one who is in charge and is in charge through, through the persons who have been chosen for being in charge in spite of their limits, for sure. But Vigano has also its own limits. I would say we need to, to leave always a, an open door for all these friends who are, in my opinion, very mistaken, dividing the church. But the, the reaction should not be to create more division. The reaction should be to speak the truth with a lot of charity and always share our hands and our lives. I, I remember that Butiglione once told me that Boitiwa, in his lessons in Lublin, used to say the following. Maybe it's a little bit extreme, but it's very, very important. When we fight for the truth and for the cause of Jesus Christ, in certain moments, we arrive to the moment of shedding blood. 
But the blood that has to be shed is not our enemies, is our own blood. We have to be the very first who have to be ready to give our lives in order to save our own enemies. If we fall in the temptation to fight with the same tools, with the same weapons of those who are organizing very peculiar secret conspiracies, we are going to imitate at the end the same behaviors, but from the opposite side. The only way to overcome these dialectics is to rediscover the way Jesus Christ redeems, and he redeems us in the cross, not in a, in a metaphoric cross, but giving, being ready, truly ready, to give our lives for Jesus Christ. And I would say this is the, the, the way to recover communio in the church. Comunio is not going to be recovered through important scholastic debates. I, I love debates. I love questio disputate. I love to write and to discover uh, different arguments for defending a more I love to do this. But the most decisive moment is not this. Is if I, I am truly converted to Jesus Christ, if I truly, truly say, I am weak, I am a sinner, I am more sinner, than Vigano and than Maciel himself. But I have been forgiven. I am witness of this forgiveness. I'm not a witness of my own coherence. My, my coherence is very weak. I am witness of someone who has forgiven my lack of coherence, of moral coherence. And thanks to this, I am ready to give my hand even to my enemy, even running the risk that my hand is going to be cut by him. I would say this is very necessary in this moment in order to overcome the dialectics between the good and the, and the evil. And I think this is one of the things that those of us who do defend Pope Francis need to always keep in mind. It's one of my greatest concerns with where Peter is and, and with social media. Dan probably recalls an instance maybe a couple of months ago where a friend of mine who I hadn't spoken to in a few years reached out to me because he said I was coming across as excessively angry or combative. And I, you know, I took that very seriously. I, I went and contacted Dan, got some feedback from him, talked to a few priests I know, talked to a couple of readers who I, who I respect highly. And I think we do need to do that reality check. I mean, for me, a, a lot of this, the, the reason why I started this website, because a lot of, a lot of the, some of the criticism we get, especially from the left, is who are these people? They are, <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know anyone that's like this. I, there, there's an old, um, I think it's an apocryphal quote from a, um, from, uh, from a New York journalist back in the 70s or, or 60s. Who are these Nixon voters? I don't know a single person <laughs> who voted for Nixon. And but for me, having grown up in this, uh, you know, conservative Catholic context and, and Dan lives in the Archdiocese of St. Louis, went to Notre, Notre Dame, has been very tied to these Catholic circles. These are the people that we know and love who are being persuaded. They may not have ever read Amoris Laetitia, but they are watching EWTN. They're reading these sources. They're hearing that Pope Francis is teaching error or that he's a heretic or that he's a bad pope. And I don't get angry 
at the people who are falling into these traps. But I do find myself getting angry at their ringleaders from time to time because of the effect that they're having. And I, I need to realize, and actually regarding Cardinal Burke, I, I wrote two pieces about him. I had been following his statements for a long time. I uncovered a talk he gave on the new teaching on the death penalty. But he was, he was giving a presentation to a bunch of, to a group of lay catechists. I don't know if you read this. And he told them that the new catechism teaching was the teaching of Pope Francis as a man. And oh he said God. explicitly it had no authority at all. Oh, my God. And when people said, well, what do we do about it? He said, I would buy a copy of the catechism as it is and keep it in a safe place. <laughs> and, he, and I mean, I'm even getting worked up right now. And then the second piece I wrote, because I was collecting these statements where he would say, he said, Evangelii Gaudium was not part of the magisterium. He said, Laudato Si was not part of the magisterium. He said, he's up to six documents now, because when I wrote it, Querida Amazonia had not yet been released, but since then he has said that it's not a magisterial document. He's denied the magisterial nature of six documents. And this is so clearly contrary, in addition to the Fatima conspiracy theories, now he's talking about microchip implants during vaccines. <laughs> yeah. And I admit it, it to some degree gets under my skin, mainly because he's given a free pass by a lot of our media. Either he's ignored or on the other side, they just brush it off and say, well, he's you know really faithful. And there are other characters, Michael Voris, Taylor Marshall, not to name names, but I am that are the ringleaders of this movement. And I, I don't question that their motives are um, sincere. Some of them are profiting. Some of them are gaining fame out of this. Some of them are being treated as heroes as a result. But I think, I think they mean what they say. But even towards them, I agree with you that that, that charity needs to be shown. And I think Pope Francis, the reason why he has not excommunicated or taken the red hats away from some of these people. Yeah. I mean, we have, a, we have a, a, an American bishop emeritus in Texas who openly denies on his website that Francis is Pope. Oh, my God. Uh, uh, bishop Gracida. He's a World War II veteran. He's, been, he's 96, 97 years old, but he's completely lucid. And nobody has, has taken any action against him. And so there's part of me that's saying, why doesn't he stand up to these people? I think part of it is because he knows that it's not going to aid them in, in their conversion. And uh, one of our collaborators, Pedro, Pedro Gabriel, actually uncovered a book that was written in Spanish. Oh, by Jorge Bergoglio, and he translated portions of it. I don't know if it was a book or a paper, but he found this in a book, and I wish it was translated into English, where Father Jorge Bergoglio wrote about silence being the response. Oh, yes. 
in in the face of these attacks and that's kind of i think that's kind of the key to understanding what he is doing however dan and i and and i'm sure you have many friends who are following these leaders and it's very painful it to very watch painful. and sometimes it's 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 hard to it's like watching a a, a train wreck <laughs> and not being able to do anything about it i would say that it, it, it's a it's a moment for understanding the logic of purification of faith uh, in some moments we need to to lose the battle from the point of view of the world in order to win the battle in the supernatural realm so in in certain moments we need to just to 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 cry Pope francis says beautiful words about uh, not only about silence but also about tears that tears are also prayer a way of praying hey, maybe i don't have words when i am crying but my tears become uh, prayers, true prayers, because God receives my tears. My tears are never futile, are always useful from a supernatural perspective. So in some moments, yes, maybe we see with tears how some of our best friends distrust the Holy Father, for instance, or the church. But uh, we need to recover in this very moment the opportunity to live in silence and in, in, in secret. Uh, this suffering, trusting that God is going to use our suffering in a better plan than ours. <laughs> now, my question is, what do you think? I mean, P Pope Francis generally does not acknowledge this sort of thing in public. He doesn't name names. Uh, he's usually very charitable if he does specifically talk about somebody. I remember before Cardinal Kafara died, for example, he made a visit, I believe, to Milan, and they looked like they were very cordial with each other and, and spoke to each other. But this must grieve him to some degree that there's a huge segment of the church that is actively working against his teaching, that is distorted the meaning of the papacy and the magisterium, he must know that Archbishop Vigano's letter, for example, was posted on Twitter by the, by the president of the United States. He knows these people. He knows a lot yeah. of, the, you know a lot of these people. I mean, how, how do you, what's your interpretation of that dynamic, especially coming from Pope Francis? I, I would say that for sure, he, he's suffering with all these unfaithful activities and, and deeds. And, but uh, I would say what it's always surprising to me, he, he's a true witness of the certainty that Christ, the resurrection of Christ is not a metaphor. It gives him an enormous hope about what is happening in the church. So, yes, I know I mean, he's a sensitive Latin American. I mean, He's an Argentinian. Argentinians and Mexicans, we always cry when we sing, for instance. When we sing the Mexican, when we Mexicans sing ranchero songs, we always are singing things that about meaning loved and uh, the, the love is not corris uh, corresponded. And, and Argentinians are the same. So he is, for sure, he loves tangos. And tangos are always painful and dramatic. <laughs> I, 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 I think he suffers. But I, I, I am 
absolutely astonished is that he has reached this point in Christian life where his certainties about how God works through humble and undeserved uh, instruments is the source of our hope. He is truly confident on God. This is amazing because in some moments, for instance, when you make political analysis following the different groups and media and Michael Boris and Light Side News and some, and in Europe there are some others, and in Latin America we, 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 we have an enormous amount of little groups against Pope Francis. Yes, uh, for sure he, he is concerned and worried about this, but he trusts that God is conducting history. And somehow he remembers me a little bit, Juan Diego. Juan Diego, the, the Mexican saint, who received the message of Our Lady of Guadalupe, because Juan Diego felt always weak, small, uh, without any right of accomplishing such a big mission of talking with the bishop. I mean, to talk with a bishop in the 16th, at the beginnings of the 16th century was very difficult. It's, diffi it's still difficult in our times to talk with our own bishops. For, for an Indian in the 16th century was an enormous difficulty. The Indians uh, in that moment were suffering a lot because the whole civilization, the whole, for instance, Aztec civilization was destroyed. It was not an, only a military destruction, it was a cosmological and theological crisis for the Indians. When Diego became Christian before the apparitions of Our Lady of Guadalupe, but he was in a process of discovering faith. And somehow Our Lady explains him little by little that God performs his main projects through the most humble means. God doesn't like big means. He always likes small means, humble means, weak means, in order to show everyone that God is involved. So I, I would say somehow Francis is a kind of new Juan Diego for me. It's a kind of new Juan Diego. Uh, for me, the, the, the story about Juan Diego and Our Lady of Guadalupe is more than a pious little story for children. It's somehow a spiritual path. If you study St. Teresa of Lisieux, if you study uh, St. John of the Cross, if you study Faustina Kowalska, you will discover the same lesson in different words, with the same lesson that it's in humbleness, it's in becoming small like a child with the faith of a child, of a small child that trusts totally in his mother. It's only following this way that the world renews and the whole church renews. It's not through pressure. It's not through through organizing groups, how the, the church uh, renews is uh, through saint, uh, sainthood. We as laymen, we are in our right of organizing our own strategies to produce some papers and to talk openly in the media about these affairs. But I would say that we have to keep in our hearts the certainty that maybe, maybe God wants our, our humble obedience and also, and also a certain uh, frustration in order to do what he wants to do. 
the triumph of the of the so-called good ones, the triumph of using power and means and creating organizations to put Christ the King on the top of the hill. Come on, this is not the way God proceeds. Christ the King is the Christ of our hearts, first of all, and our hearts are conquered by Christ when the heart becomes aware about its own sins and asks for forgiveness. This concludes part two of our conversation with Rodrigo Guerra. Please join us in the upcoming days for part three, when we discuss Pope Francis and the future of the Catholic Church. If you enjoy these podcasts, I would ask you to please consider becoming a Patreon sponsor for Where Peter Is. Your support is what makes our work possible. Until next time, God bless and take care. (music) 